Hello, and thank you for listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. The times, they are changing, right? Do you ever wonder where we will be in 15 or 20 years? What will the economy look like? Will it still be based on the petrodollar, or will we have found better resources and technologies to propel growth and prosperity? Things are still tight in this country, but many believe we're headed for better days. Certainly others think we are headed for dark, dark days. Stock market is high, dollar seems strong, but when will the next downturn occur? Can we learn from the past and take steps to prevent the next collapse? Well, our guest, Chris Martinson, is an economic researcher and futurist specializing in energy and resource depletion. He was one of the early econo-bloggers who forecasted the housing market collapse of 2008, and he's going to share with us some insights and predictions for the coming years. So welcome to Living Wealthy Radio, Chris. Thank you, Teresa. So good to be with you today. Great to have you on. So tell me, since you were one of the early bloggers who forecasted the housing market collapse of 2008, did you have a short position that you benefited from? (laughs) Well, I I did. Um, I was watching the whole housing bubble sort of, in it, by the way, it's a bubblet. It wasn't the main bubble. That, that's a main course for later in the conversation. But I was watching the usual things that other people were watching that now, if you've watched the movie, say, The Big Short, were also obvious to lots of other people. I didn't uh, participate at that level, but I did have shorts on mortgage insurers and home builders. Those were the two big areas that I concentrated on. Um, so, yes, I had an interest in, in what was happening, but it just seemed very obvious to me that this was a wildly overextended industry and that it was uh, headed for an accident. Well, it was obvious, you know, looking back, right? And many of us, uh, at least some of us, I know we, I had discussed it with my clients over and over again, those clients of mine that are real estate investors, and it was, it was like watching a train wreck, right? Uh, like mm-hmm. literally watching a train wreck day by day by day. And the movie The Big Short, I think they did an amazing job at dumbing it down so that the average person could understand exactly what was going on. But when everybody, everybody was investing in real estate, and that's like the big short showed, you know, the stripper, right, having five Mm -hmm. properties. When everybody was investing, you knew something was up. It just had to come down. Yes, and the essence of a bubble is is pretty simple, even, I think, prospectively, but certainly retrospectively, to see. My definition that I like the best is that a bubble exists when financial asset prices rise beyond what incomes can sustain. And that's it. I mean, something's worth what somebody's willing to pay for it, but it goes beyond that when you get into bubbles, and it gets beyond what people can pay for it. So we're seeing a bubble right now, not to pick on any one area, but in Toronto real estate. Average house prices in Toronto are over a million dollars. Uh, and, and last year we saw a 21 point, oh, 21% increase in house prices above 
median wage increases for the region. And that's uh, another double-digit increase. So you watch these things unfold, and you say, how can people be doing this again? But people are feeling pinched, and they're priced out of the market, and housing's only going up, and everybody's getting rich but them. And that's the story. So it's not hard when you back up and you say, wait a minute, um, really, what's the income in this story? And if you can track the income, it's, you know, there always has to be a relationship to fundamentals at some point. I know it's not very exciting, and it's more exciting to be getting rich when everybody else is. But here's the other feature of a bubble, which is that it's impossible for everybody to get out of the way of one and to uh, be safe. Uh, that's just the nature of it. As soon as the selling starts, the doorways are small. Well, markets like Toronto and Vancouver, and I'm in, I'm in Austin, Texas, which has its own bubblet, and I, I, that's the first time I've ever heard that term, and I absolutely love it, and I'm going to start using it. Thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, let, let's say Austin. A lot of buyers coming in from other markets that were much, much higher than Austin, and it's raised the, the prices of uh, residential home. And, in fact, uh, the middle class is being pushed out of the market here. Toronto, Vancouver, I know a lot of international money, right, coming into those markets. So if it's international market that can afford those properties and is pushing out the middle class, how does, how does that fit into your definition of a bubble? Well, so this is, this is where we get some really distortive elements that have come in, and it's, it, this is a new part of the story, which is that the central banks of the world, by which I mean the central banks of Japan, Europe under the ECB, Bank of England, Swiss National Bank, and the Federal Reserve, you put them all together and you discover that they've created about $16 trillion of thin air money, and they've been pushing that into the financial markets, and that's goosed. Uh, a lot of portfolio returns, speculative returns. Uh, it's kept things propped up. They told us, oh we, oh, we had to do it or everything would collapse, but now they seem trapped in, in this massive money creation. So we can't just look at the Vancouver market as any more in relationship to the jobs in Vancouver because you're right, there's a lot of hot Asian money coming over, looking to escape from the locales where that money was, was generated mm-hmm. or, or accumulated. And it needs to go somewhere, and the, the story in Vancouver is a much a story of how much the people in China are currently worried about the Chinese economy, Chinese capital controls, government uh, uh, maneuverings, things like that. So that's hot money looking for a place to go and feel relatively safer. People in Asia have a long storied love affair with both real estate and gold, uh, so they've been pouring it into real estate for now. So that's part of the dynamic. However, if you're in Vancouver and you're thinking, well, this dynamic has nowhere to go but up forever, please understand that the China miracle is one that's destined to turn into a fundamental story, too, at some point. I was just in China uh, a couple months ago, and I was in Shenzhen, and I got to visit some of the ghost apartments, you know, which are these uh, beautiful buildings Mm -hmm. that have been put up, but nobody lives in them. And the average price to income. Now, I think I think you know if once you hit a price to income, your that ratio is say at eight, you're really extended. By ten, you're o- you're over the mark. So what I mean is, if the average income is fifty thousand, that would be a five hundred thousand dollar average or median house price. Mm-hmm. So that's a ten to one. They're hitting twenty to one, thirty, forty to one ratios out there. So at twenty to one. It means somebody who's earning 50000 has stretched and bought an apartment worth a million 
dollars. They're doing this. It's crazy (laughs) time, right? Well, so that's where they are, and that's got to break at some point, Teresa. It just, it just does. Absolutely. And my understanding of the Asians' buying habits and, and mindset around money is they're very resistant to debt. Are they paying cash for those apartments, or are they bought into the Western American way of financing everything? No, they're paying a lot of cash, and there's one other very important structural issue that I learned when I was over there. It was explained to me by a, a person who happens to have been fairly high up in the Chinese party, and he said, to understand the real estate buying, you have to understand 421. And what he was talking about was that they have two generations under the one-child policy. So you might have four grandparents, mm-hmm. because they were only allowed to have one child each, would have two um, offspring, and those two offspring would have one. So in many cases, you have one grandchild with two parents and four grandparents. So that 4 to one structure means that all of the capital appreciation, all of the savings of that family structure is pouring down to that one child. And it's very different, say, you know, if your grandparents had three children and each of them had three children, you know, the money's sort of diffusing. Um, it's hard to pass down mm-hmm. a lot. But there they have a very concentrated uh, uh, sharing structure that's happening. So there's a lot of cash money out there because they people are very high savings rates, extraordinary, 30% or more. Uh, so the grandparents saved, the parents saved, and what do you do with all that capital? Well, they don't trust the stock market. They don't trust a lot of things, so they're, they're putting their faith in real estate. And uh, like I said, with with price-to-earnings ratios of 20, 30, even 40 in some locations, that ends in tears. There's just no other example in history where it doesn't. And so why the ghost apartments? Well, because um, they're building it at such an extraordinary rate that they're uh, actually building at a much faster rate than those uh, apartments can be absorbed into the market. Um, And the theory is that more people will continue to move from the rural areas into cities. And so far that's been true, and they've been able to run that for a while. I think that it, it's, of course, a story that always ha- it has an end at some point. Um, and so when it does, hop, skip, and a jump, we find out that China's got a lot of problems inside. They're going to have a major credit bust at some point. They're going to have to fight that tooth and nail. But the, the flood of money to Vancouver dries up at that point in time. Fascinating. And it, there are so many implications for us here in America with what's going on in China, right? Address that briefly, and then I want to get into your, your background. Oh, certainly. So, uh, listen, this is a global world now, and it's impossible to really analyze anything like, you know, U.S. stocks, the S&P 500, the, the DAX. I, I, don't, I can't look at them individually anymore. Something happened around 2007 or so where something structurally changed. We saw the rise of algorithmic trading. And now, if you know, I study the markets, Teresa, very closely, but if you stripped off the headings and you said one of these is a chart of, of the DAX, one of these is the, is the Dow, and one of these is the Nikkei, many times I can't tell them apart on a daily, weekly, even a monthly basis. They, they just work in lockstep now. Um, so to really analyze any one market is, is impossible. Now you have to understand where's the global flow of money, how much money is being created. And let's be clear, right now close to $200 billion a month is being created by central banks and thrown into the financial markets. 
that distorts everything. So now, you know, what's another essential feature of bubbles? Well, distorted pricing. You don't know what something's worth. It's hard to get your hands around what's happening. So this is really a very exciting, but also I think tricky, if not treacherous time to be investing because there's not a lot of investing going on. There's a lot of speculating. That's a different thing, though, from, from actually investing, which is about cash flows when you get right down to it. Hmm. So tell us about your background. How did you get involved with uh, financial forecasting? Well, it's probably uh, a big old case of enlightened self-interest is as nice as I can put it. What happened was uh, I, have a, I have a background as a scientist, a Ph.D. scientist. I worked in a laboratory for a while. I was working on, um, on uh, nerves and nerve cells and how they work and all that. Uh, but what that gave me, Teresa, that background is data. I love data. I love digging in. I love hypotheses. I'm not afraid to gather data that, that doesn't work with what I believe to be true and, and shape what I believe to be true around the data. So I have that. And then I went and got uh, an MBA and went off into corporate finance and strategy consulting for a number of years. And, uh, and then the enlightened self-interest hit. I, I'm a saver. I'm an investor. And 2000 and 2001, my portfolio got shredded. I started saying, why did this happen? You know, I started having to pay attention. I was a genius, right? Everybody was. Hey, the 90s, right. I just made money. Just I was an investor, and it turned out I wasn't. Um, I was a speculator. I got caught up in things, too. And uh, that was a very expensive lesson for me, and I decided to see what I could about that. So I started digging. I started digging into all the statements that my broker was telling me. You know, oh, stocks for the long haul, right? And Well, you dig enough, and you say, well, if you bought at the peak of 29, you didn't break even on just a nominal basis till 1954. It was like 25 years. I was like, that's too long. <laughs> what, else, what else you got? So I was trying to understand really the larger economic sweeps and cycles. So I started studying very carefully. And then one thing led to another. And I started understanding how we can't look at that in isolation, but we have to understand how the energy system is actually feeding our economy and how those two are linked. And then I started understanding how the environment, meaning natural resources, out, waste back in, how that also provides constraints in this story. All of that came together. I quit my job, started a blog, so don't ever take career advice from me, right? Uh, and, and took that passion I had for telling this story of this change that I see coming, and it turned, that actually became both my mission and my money. I, I, this is my livelihood now. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a curious person who uh, digs around and likes data and likes to be able to figure out how to turn that into a story that's more than interesting but can lead to actions people can take. I, I love your background. Um, so, really, you love data. Would you consider yourself at all a, a data scientist in the financial world? As much as I can be, you know, it's um, uh, the, the luxury I had being a scientist is I could get good, high-quality data that I could reproduce and be certain of. Uh, today, uh, you know, the financial data is, by definition, murkier. I, you know, listen, even like if J.P. Morgan says, here's our earnings, their 10Q is 196 pages long, and it's got footnotes, and you can't really be sure. And some of the footnotes are like, oh, management made a decision on the value of our derivative portfolio. Like, what? You know, so it's, it's, it's less clear data, but I think if you still sift and look at it from multiple angles, you can begin to, to, to figure out what the real story is under there. 
So interesting. Yeah, you know, there's, well, let me ask this question. From a data perspective, are you using any artificial intelligence? Because what you're doing, right, supposedly today, AI can probably do very, very quickly. Well, absolutely. This is a, an area that I'm not personally running in my own shop, as it were, but I'm in contact with people who are using the biggest of the big data. And I've watched what they're capable of doing, and it's astonishing. So, you know, um, uh, there's a huge change coming. So instead of waiting for Japan to announce that they had a dismal quarter and GDP shrank 0.1% after they've statistically massaged it, the big data people are just tracking all the stuff going into all the ports and all the stuff coming out. And they can see it, and they can see it in real time. They can tell through store traffic foot patterns and, and, and uh, uh, traffic loads whether a store – like they can, they can months in advance or weeks in advance, depending on the data, tell you things that before we had to wait for the announcement. So it's really exciting to watch uh, some of that real-time data come through. The challenge now for these – folks is, is how do you even sift through that much data? And what data is relevant and what isn't? Yes, and sometimes and it seems... data goes into the algorithm for uh, actionable, right? I mean, right. data, the purpose of the data is to take action, to give results, right? And, yep. how, you know, what data is really data that you can use? Yeah, and that's all an open question, and sometimes data is really useful. So, you know, for instance, there are certain periods over the past year where you might have said, oh, if I could just get, you know, slightly advanced data, like a second or 500 milliseconds early about what the Japanese yen is doing relative to the euro and the dollar, I could actually trade gold off of that. Very actionable data. Correlation very high, 0 0.8, 0 0.85, huge, no problem. And then that correlation broke down, you know, and became, you know, <laughs> zero or negative. So sometimes the data seems to be giving you something that, that's very useful, and it is, but it's changing all the time, too. So there is that aspect of it. But certain things, like, you know, if you can get advanced gasoline sales, you know, there are very predictive things out there that tell you whether the economy in general is speeding up or slowing down. And getting advance warning of that is very helpful. So, Chris, that's fascinating. So interesting. What do you think uh, will be the bigger risk for preserving wealth in this new economy that we're shifting to and some would say is already here? Well, there, there's you know, a number of risks out there. First, this so-called expansion has been fairly tepid. It's really long in the tooth right now. Um, we're kind of due for a, a downturn of some form or another globally. And just based on numbers and statistics, and uh, and the central banks of the world don't really have any ammunition. They don't have any maneuvering room here at this point in time. So, with interest rates close to zero, if we do get into a downturn, what would they do? And they don't have that many things left to them because uh, it's very difficult to move into negative interest rate territory, particularly if people have the opportunity to um, take cash out of the bank. So that's why you've been seeing all these things about war on cash and, oh, the criminals use cash, all this. Don't listen to that. It's, it's if they take cash away, it's simply as a means to give one more degree of freedom to central bank policies, which, which I think is insane, by the way. Um, but, and we should have an open conversation about that as a culture before we do it. But it's sort of happening globally. Uh, and the second big risk that I, I see in this story um, is that the world went – 
put on, we went from about $150 trillion in debt before the crisis began in 2007, and we're well over $220 trillion in debt. So there's been a massive increase in debt worldwide. Well, what is debt? Debt is a claim on future money. Okay. Well, what's money? Well, money is a claim on real stuff, right? Money has no value unless I can buy a fence with it or a car or food or something. So I'm looking at the amount of claims that have been accumulated, and they're massive. But, Teresa, what we haven't seen is a big increase in economic output, which is the income in this story. So as a private individual, if your debts are accumulating very rapidly and your income is growing much more slowly, that's a problem eventually. So that's what we're seeing at the global stage is a lot of debt and not a lot of growth. And I was just uh, presenting to pension managers last week, uh, wealth conferences prior, people who are managing big money are seeing this, and it's a real problem. They don't really know what to do about it. So, uh, you know, that's a risk that I say for people who are listening is understand, you know, where we are in this growth cycle. I think that it's a very prudent time to um, step back a little if you can, not be fully invested. This isn't quite the time in history to swing for the fences because the risk in this story is a debt deflation, something where there's an economic hiccup, debts can't get paid back, and that creates sort of a, a, a ripple effect. Um, and that's what they're facing in Europe right now. I don't know if you've seen, but the Greek debt crisis is back on the front pages over there. Guess what? It never got fixed. If the Greeks can't pay back their debts, French banks and German banks get in trouble. If they get in trouble, then on and on and on down, down the line. Um, so that's really the risk here is that the central banks created a huge, huge uh, frenzy of new debt accumulation with their fingers crossed that somehow we would get this magic of high growth rates back to make it all make sense. We didn't get that. And that's the big risk in this story. Do you think it's on purpose? On purpose? What do you mean? Well, you know, do you think that the central bankers know what's coming down the pike and they're just setting us up for a big fall so that they have an opportunity to uh, be, you know, come up with solutions to the big fall that benefit them and give them more power and control? Well, I don't, yes, and, and, but let's be clear about this. That's always been the pattern going back many decades. Big banking is a heads they win, tails we lose um, sort of a scenario. It's always been true. So when they're out there taking big risks and making big money, they make big bonuses, they keep those. And then when inevitably that all goes awry and they get in big trouble, then they get bailouts and uh, we, we get to pay for that. Um, so, so under that incentive structure, it's not that big banks are evil. They're doing exactly what I would do if somebody said, Chris, if you walk up to a roulette table, anything you win, you keep. And if you get in big trouble, we'll just, we'll, we'll take care of the rest, right? I'm going to, woohoo, I'm going to put it all on black 13, you know, let it run. Um, and, uh, uh, so that's really, it's just understanding human incentives. The, the way I interpret that now is have the central banks enabled more of this dumb risk-taking at exceptional levels by the big banks? The answer is, yep, they've done it again. Um, so, so it's really more of a certainty to me than a question as to whether or not this goes pear-shaped again and goes bad. What's different this time 
is I think that the will of the people, when we look at the Trump election results, the Brexit results, the uh, looming stuff that's happening with Marine Le Pen potentially winning in France, all mm-hmm. of that are all expressions mm-hmm. of people saying, hey, we're tired of this game. Globalization served a few interests, but not the many. Um, the bailout served the few, not the many. There, so the whole concept of having the freedom to be able to bail out the elites again I don't think it has as much political capital this time. So this is why I'm convinced that the central banks are actually quite afraid. They, they, I think it was right for them to, to create low interest rates for six months, maybe eight months, a year if you stretched it. But we're up to eight years now, right? They way overdid this. And they're really afraid of a market fall because they know it could be uh, systemically destabilizing. And I don't think they have the political ammunition left to do what they need to do. So the next, so, so this is my prediction of the future. I could be wrong. But what I see coming is a big deflation. Things start to topple. It really scares the banks, the central banks. But this time, they can't just bail out the banks. They have to do something else. So first the fall, which is the deflation. Then they get the political firepower to actually print more money. But this time, it goes to Main Street. And by which I mean, you and I and everybody listening, we get a, a tax holiday, no taxes we have to pay next year, or a big rebate for taxes we paid last year, or just a check from the Treasury Department that the Fed finances. That's money for Main Street. And at that point, that's when I advise uh, all of my subscribers at Peak Prosperity. I say, hey, uh, that's the time when you run, don't walk, start buying stuff. That's, that's our, uh, a, you know, he who moves first wins most in that story. Um, but, you know, this is a story that's been told so many times in history that the only thing that's different this time is they've got better tools of persuasion. They've got better ability to um, control the message, as it were, through, through the medium. And they've got uh, computers which allow them to uh, fiddle with markets much more elegantly than they had in the past. But deep down, it's always this. You can't print your way to prosperity. If you could, we'd all be speaking Latin because the Romans would have worked it out. Very clever people, right? <laughs> they tried it. Everybody right, who tried it right. has failed. You know? So right. I, I, you have to believe, to believe you can print your way to prosperity, you have to believe the four most dangerous words in, in investing, which is, this time, it's different. So will traditional investments like home ownership and, you know, stock market investing, Wall Street investing still be relevant or worthwhile? Oh, absolutely, but things are going to change a bit. So when I say, you know, take sensible precautions at this point, um, what I'm really talking about is, is so let's, let's look at what happened in Weimar, Germany from 1918 to 1923, the, the apocryphal era where people had wheelbarrows of cash and they were feeding the furnace with bricks of money because it was cheaper than buying wood with the same amount of cellulose. Um, that, those stories, well, those happened because there was too much creation of money relative to real stuff. So when you read books about it, they talk about this great wealth destruction, this inflation that destroyed wealth, that destroyed the middle class, all this wealth got ruined. And that's wrong. What happened, the wealth of the nation didn't go anywhere. The money went down, but the wealth didn't go anywhere. So this is distinction that's critical. The real wealth is always the, the land, the productive enterprises, the real estate, the material goods of a nation, that's the real wealth. Money is just a claim on it. 
So the claims on it got destroyed. But when you look at 1918 to 1923 in Weimar, Germany, the same number of hotels, same number of arable acres, same amount of productive factory farming, all of that. And when the dust settled in 1924-25, when they got back on their footing, what you noticed was it wasn't so much that the wealth got destroyed, but it did get transferred. So who owned it changed. But, it, but the same hotels were still there in the same factories and all in the farms. So the wealth got transferred, and that's one of the most important things I'm trying to educate people about is if you can understand what's happening here, a lot of people will experience that first big punishing fall in the markets as wealth destruction, but it's not true. It's, about, it's getting transferred. So to be on the right side of that transfer line, you want to make sure you're owning real wealth it, it, as much as makes you feel comfortable. So real wealth is uh, good real estate in productive areas, high cash flowing businesses, the means of production, uh, you know, which would be the factories or the raw, the primary wealth, which is the land, which is the timber, which is the ore, which is the, the mineral rights, the, the oil well, stuff like that. So, uh, you know, to the extent people are 100% in the markets, they have all their money in stocks and bonds and, and cash and stuff like that. My advice is get some of that on the other side of the line, over here uh, on, on, in expressions of real, tangible wealth. That's been proven throughout history to be the right side of the line if, or in this case when, you get that wealth transfer. Hmm. Good insight. So you call energy the master resource. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, let's imagine, Teresa, that I give you, I'll give you everything, like, like uh, uh, um, everything to build a house. You're on an island. There's no other way to, to get anything else. But all you, you've got wood, nails, uh, you know, roofing materials. You've got everything. And you could build a house, and that house would be the, the GDP of your island. Um, if you didn't have food energy, though, if you personally, that's your, our is organism. That's our primary energy source. You wouldn't be able to complete the house. You wouldn't be able to build it. You know, you'd, you'd use whatever stored energy you had in your body. You know, with, addition, with abundant food, you could do whatever you wanted and build that house and many more besides. So once we begin to understand the role of energy in, a, in an economy, we understand that it's not just another commodity. You know, it's listed there on the, on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. You got grains, softs, metals, energy. It's sort of tucked in there making it seem like it's just a resource, but it's not. Energy is the master resource. With energy, everything else is a subset and flows from that. And if you understand where we are in the energy story, that's where everything really opens up. And we have a much broader conversation. And it becomes, I think, the focusing lens that allows us to really understand why the next 20 years are going to be completely unlike the last 20 years. Energy is going to be where almost all the action is going forward. So that's so interesting. There's so much happening with energy. And in fact, there's uh, a thinking out there from some of, you know, today's greatest thought leaders, technology thought leaders, that energy is going to be uh, demonetized, that energy will be available to everyone for free or almost free. Yeah, that story has been going on for about 60, 70 years, and it's always somewhere just in the future. I call that the, the law of receding horizons, right? Remember <laughs> nuclear energy? It's going to be too cheap to meter, right? And, and I, I feel these uh, articles all the time. Somebody said, oh, look, some French 
utility company has, has found out that, that it'll only be three cents a kilowatt hour for solar, maybe. And, uh, and all you have to understand is that it can never go below about seven cents per kilowatt hour, ever, because that seven cents is what's required to keep electric, electricity lines up on pylons with substations that can deliver it to your home. The delivery charge, even if we made it totally free, it can never go below seven cents, right, if we, if we could generate it for free. But, of course, we can't. Um, so the other part of this story about alternative energy that most people don't understand that they really ought to is that when we see a wind tower go up and all of a sudden the wind tower's there and the big blades are spinning and everybody's like, ooh, you know, that, it's all wind power. It's like, mm. But if you watched how, that, how the blades got constructed and where the metal in the housing up top, which is the copper windings and the neodymium magnets, where, where, how those got mined and processed and delivered and how that tower got built and how that big concrete base with over 100,000 pounds of just reinforcing rod in the base if you study where each of those components came from, all of them came with fossil fuels. Oil, coal, natural gas were all intimately involved in creating that thing. So it's not like that wind tower just generated all on its own. Um, and so fossil fuels are still 80% of our energy mix globally, and they're going to be for a long time. So that's part one of the story. And part two is someday those energy uh, BTUs, if we look at it that way, or just joules, or however you want to measure energy, but the total amount of work that comes out of fossil fuels will peak at some point in the future. And when it does, it's okay, it'll peak, it'll take about 10 years, big, long, broad peak, and then it'll start going down over time. The reason that's such a critical story is that while we're still getting more energy from fossil fuels, anything is possible. We can build more solar, more wind. We could do all of that. That's all possible. But once energy starts, the fossil fuels has peaked, then, Teresa, we have to make hard decisions. Are we going to use this extra energy to grow our economy? Are we going to use it to grow food? Are we going to use it to fund our military? Or are we going to use it to install solar panels? You know, their trade-offs will have to be made. So what I'm worried about in the work that I do in the world is to show people how hard it is to make a transition from one form of energy to another. Historically, it's taken 40 to 60 years to just get to half penetration of a new energy source. So going from wood to coal took 60 years, half. So it's just half. You know, coal's way better than wood. Still took society about 60 years to go, eh, good enough that we'll make it half our mix. Um, and then going from coal to oil, again, about 50 to 60 years, even though oil's way better than coal. You know, you can't run airplanes on coal, but you can run them on, on oil. To move from oil and natural gas to wind and solar is actually not a more awesome transition to make because we're moving from a more concentrated to a less concentrated source. And I'm not saying we can't do it. I'm not saying we won't do it. But if we're waiting for market forces, it'll probably be 50 to 60 years before we get to half penetration. But oops, all the models say that we're probably going to hit peak fossil fuels. Again, not running out. They just gently can't quite get any more out of the ground. Uh, we'll be peaking in about 2030, which if that sounds far away, it's as far away as 2004 was, right? Uh, it's just 13 years in the future. So 13 years in the past is 2004. So it's not that far away. And, and so if this is in less and less we as a culture said this is really important. We, uh, energy is everything. It's the master resource. We can't leave it to chance or market forces. 
So it's going to be the equivalent of a Manhattan Project times an Apollo Project times some whole number like 10. It's a really big deal, the transition. And we could do it, but we're not doing it, at, at least in a, in, a, um, in a really thoughtful and earnest way at this point in time. Chris, I so appreciate your ability to take these really complex topics and simplify it to the, those that don't uh, specialize, right, in these areas. So thank you for, for your explanations. You, you provide a really optimistic path forward in your book, Prosper and How to Prepare for the Future and Create a World Worth Inheriting. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that before we sign off today. Absolutely. So, so what we just did was a little problem definition, and, and that's all great, and sometimes people hear that and they, they kind of, their muscles all sort of shrink a little and they go, ah, you know. Uh, and that's not the point. My point isn't to scare people. Uh, but these are some realities that exist, and once you look at them, you go, ah, well, what should we do? And so when I get asked that question, what should I do, Prosper was the book that Adam Taggart and I wrote that, that answers that. Uh, Adam Taggart's my, my co-founder of Peak Prosperity. And so there we look at all the ways people can both meet the challenges of the future and be adding really high-quality additions to their current life so that even if the future turns out totally different than we expect, like is way more awesome or way less awesome, doesn't matter, uh, that anything you do in, the, in Prosper will, will have you – uh, be a little bit happier, a little bit healthier, a little bit more well-connected, more grounded today. So we think there are actions people can take today that, that will serve them in any possible future, but also today. And this isn't just writing about stuff that we sounds good, right? Everything in the book is, is Adam and I are living in our own lives. So I'm actually happier and healthier than I was 10 years ago. And so in Prosper, uh, we identify eight forms of capital that we think uh, if people could increase their uh, capital in each one of these areas, that this would be a, a, make them much more resilient and, and, and um, wealthier and happier. So financial capital, just one. But living capital is another form of capital, and that's the health of your body, and that's the food that you eat, and also the, the, the um, richness of the land around you and the health of the soils and the water and all of that. So if you just have money, and that's the only form of capital you have, we think you're wildly exposed. So you want to build up all your forms of capital. That's what's in Prosper. Social capital's in there. Emotional capital, really important one. Knowledge capital, time capital. So with a, a sort of a structured way of building all your forms of capital up, that makes you more resilient. And um, I think once you get to that state, what I am facing and what Adam, what we're facing in our business is what we call insurmountable opportunity right now. So there's also incredible opportunities that are unfolding, but to see them, you have to let go of the past. You have to understand how rapidly the world is changing. And it's changing, again, some of these are scary changes and some of them are awesome changes. But you picked up one, artificial intelligence and robotics. If people listening don't understand this, there is literally not one single job that humans can do that artificial intelligence won't be able to do better either right now or soon. That changes everything. So mm -hmm. there's ways to get in front of that and ways to understand it and ways to make it work for you. But one thing you can't do is just ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist because it's coming. Um, so, so that's an example of, of an area where we think people should spend some time, 
learn, get educated, uh, develop their own depth in these areas, and be curious and understand that, you know, here's my simple metric, Teresa. If, if anything I'm doing makes me feel more connected and more alive, I'll do it. So I, I, I don't at all sit here worrying a lot about where the future is going, but I do understand where it's going. And I'm actually pretty excited, a little concerned, and, you know, welcome to being a human. Hmm? Do you have kids? I do, three. Three kids. You worry about them and their future and how Oh, of course. I mean, if you don't worry about your kids, you're not, I don't know if, you know, that, that's a parental thing, any generation. Um, but I worry about them less than most because we've raised them with an entrepreneurial mindset. We've raised them to be very curious, to be very adaptable, uh, very creative. So we never raise them with an idea that there's a right and a wrong answer unless it was simple math. Uh, everything in life is, is, um, is sort of up for negotiation in one fundamental way or another. So, uh, yeah, I, I, they'll, be, they'll, do as, they'll do as well as, as any, any kids can as far as I'm concerned. So, uh, good job. Thanks. Good <laughs> job. Excellent. I, I have a 21-year-old, and from the day he was born, we uh, we taught him, you know, look at what, you know, from a programming perspective, what is the world trying to teach you? What messages are they trying to teach you? Um, how are they going to? How are they trying to influence you to think? Think different. Um, uh-huh. Entrepreneurial. I think that's. I mean, we're in a freelance economy today. I think it's going to be more and more if you don't figure out a way to bring value to the marketplace. Uh, AI, robotics, uh, technology is going to replace you completely and totally. So how can you bring value to the marketplace uh, so that you can, you can live a self-actualized life and not be mm-hmm. part of the, the sheeple? Um, yeah, and I do worry. Um, of course, but um, I think probably you and I worry because we're informed and educated and aware of all these issues. Uh, ignorance is bliss many times, right? <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. but that's why we worry because we know it's coming. Um, but, uh, you know, Chris, I so appreciate you being our guest today, and you've given us a, a thought-provoking look at what's coming I think we face severe challenges to prosperity and economic growth in the future. Uh, I believe in hope, uh, live, live by hope without hope, right? Uh, my people will perish, and I'm, I'm so, so, uh, such a believer in, in that concept, but not hopium, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You need hope from a, from a value perspective, from a thinking perspective, so that you can look for solutions, because if you think there's no hope, then I think you shut down. So, by taking informed action now, while we still have time, we can minimize our exposure and vulnerabilities to these coming trends and even discover a better way of life in the process. And by being proactive, we can enable ourselves and our friends and our neighbors and our children to live a richer and more secure life. I think Prosper, your book, um, is a fantastic resource for our listeners. And uh, your website, if you can share it and also uh, where people can buy your book. We will also post this uh, podcast today on Living Wealthy Radio and also with information on how they can reach you. So if you can share that with our listeners, that'd be great. I'd love to. So Prosper is available at Amazon and also through the website. And uh, if you buy it through the website, you can get a signed copy from there. And the website is Peak Prosperity 
peakprosperity.com. That's P-E-A-K. And at peakprosperity.com, we have a lot of free content where we're wrestling with what should I do, and we also have a subscription newsletter for people who do like to go deeper. Um, and we have an upcoming seminar. We do one a year. It's coming April 6th to 9th, and uh, that's at the Rowe Conference Center in Massachusetts. It's, it's really fun, uh, very intimate. We, we get to you know, um, kind of close the doors and, and really go deep on all this stuff you and I have just been talking about, Teresa. And, uh, and yeah, this is, this is my passion. This is my mission in life is, is uh, sharing what I already know in my own life, uh, which is that what you talked about how to become fully self-actualized. The, the opportunity in this story is to wake up and really engage in life. And I'm so happy I went down this path personally, and uh, it's my, my passion to share that with other people. So thank you for this opportunity to do so. And thank you. Chris Martinson, livingwealthyradio.com. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Download or subscribe to our podcast to hear a new show every week. I am Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com. 